0: Welcome to Q-Cuddle, a podcast about Kubernetes and the people who build and use it. I'm your host, Rich Burrows. So this episode, I'm joined by Andre Henry. Andre is an engineering manager at Venmo. Welcome.
1: Hi, thanks for having
0: me. Yeah, you bet. I'm, I'm really excited to have you here today. Um, uh, for some context, we connected through SREcon, um, I watched your awesome talk that you gave there Thank you. about um, abstractions and complexity. Um, it was called It's a Trap, How Abstractions Have Failed Us. Um, I want to get into those topics, you know, about complexity and and uh, specific to Kubernetes. Um, but first, I'd, I'd like to know a little bit more about you. Um, we mentioned this uh, before we came on the recording that, uh, that uh, you're actually the first person that I've interviewed for this podcast that I didn't know personally fairly well already. And so uh, I'd like to uh, find out, um, I guess we could start with how you got into computing in the first place. What, what was it that kind of drew you to it?
1: Oh, wow. Yeah. You know, I think, um, so my name is Andre Henry, systems engineer yeah. and engineering manager at Venmo. Um, I've been in computing for as long as I can remember. I, you know, my mom, like way, my earliest memory was like way back in the 80s sometime. My mom brought home a computer book because, uh, she was head of the business department at a community college. Okay. And they got some computers and they went to the business department, right? Because, I guess, at the time, computers, word processors, you type. And <laughs> she brought home a book on BASIC. And for some reason, she also brought home some punch cards. I should oh, clarify, wow. too, that this was in Jamaica. So okay. in the 80s, computers in Jamaica, especially in the university or college setting, would have been rejects or, you know, <laughs> uh, old units that American institutions had upgraded we yeah. probably got a donation i was really too young to understand you know all that But i do know that they were definitely retired units from from america so she so she brought you the book did you actually yeah. have a yeah. computer to do the program no on? not at home oh, wow. no i learned basic without a computer it's, that's <laughs> so. amazing I mean you know I every time I got access to a computer I would, I could fire up basic and 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 type a couple lines in and yeah and get some stuff done but yeah so that's that's it because I guess as part of as part of introducing the computer she also took a programming course in basic as well so she taught me I read her books, I did her homework and you know and and that's how so it was through my wow. mom and then that's super interesting yeah it's it's pretty cool my mom was the first programmer i know i guess um and then uh you know just kept going throughout high school and then eventually we migrated to the US um and then just kept going high school and and stuff so awesome yeah
0: so I was looking at your LinkedIn, and I think that uh, we entered the industry at about the same time. So uh, I got my first job working for an internet provider in about '95, and I think that you came little in bit, maybe a, yeah, a year a little or two bit. later than that. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, a little bit after that. But you know, I think back then that's how I got into an ISP. You know, I was in college. Got exposed to Unix systems, uh, got exposed to, like, uh, SunOS, Solaris, and SGI IRIX. And then, you know, late 90s, when the internet started to become a thing, if you knew how it worked, you could get <laughs> yep. any job you wanted back then, and... um it was really cool because there was no concept of like, you know, the gatekeeping and and stuff wasn't there yet. And it was like, you know how this works. You can learn. We'll let you learn if you get us on the internet. And I'm like, Hi, done, accepted. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. I, I
0: talked to people about that period of time, you know, between like the mid nineties and when the, the bubble burst, mm-hmm. you know, around 2000 that, um, back then, you know, I started off in a call center and then I, you know, got promoted to be a sys admin and, and I felt bulletproof, you know, like I, yeah. I felt like I could find another job in five minutes Oh yeah, if, if I were ever oh, unemployed yeah. for some reason. Oh yeah.
1: So yeah. And, uh, That's how, like, my initial career started off. And then, you know, one thing led to another and I found myself kind of specializing in medical imaging and teleradiology. You might have seen some of that on my LinkedIn profile. Um, So, you know, I was hooking up medical devices to the internet, building internet-connected medical devices, or even just not necessarily internet connected, but network-connected medical devices. And then, specifically around medical imaging and um, somewhere around 2013-ish I just got out of the medical industry altogether and then um, I started to just do more generalized infrastructure operations work because you know I find that you know the lessons I learned building medical devices and connecting them to hospital networks around Reliability, availability, designing security, from security <laughs> which you know that that's a whole other podcast about security of medical yeah. devices. But you know, I feel that those lessons I, I was really able to to translate them into doing operations work, um, both on prem and then in the cloud, AWS. So yeah, and and other providers.
0: That's awesome. Um, so I do want to get into the talk some, um, Mm -hmm. I'm hoping we can do this in a way where I'm just not rehashing all the things that you said, uh, but I, but I thought that I thought it was really fantastic and it really echoed a lot of. A lot of thoughts that I've had. Um, I mean, I was, you know, again, we I think overlap a lot, right? And and we've seen the same sort of progression from working on, you know, bare metal. And in my case, it wasn't it wasn't just that it was bare metal. I mean, it was like individual commodity PCs yeah. that we were running Linux yeah. on and yeah. like sliding CDs in yeah. and 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 doing installs like that. To you know having um, all these additional later layers, you know, on top of that, you know, virtualization and then cloud and, you know, container schedulers now and, and even service mesh. Yes. And, and I'm wondering if you can maybe talk about why you think it is that us infrastructure folks have developed this love for abstractions.
1: I I mean, I think there's a lot of reasons for that. Right. And, some of it is just you know it's we're engineers, and our industry is just one of new 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 um, yeah. also I think um as as our infrastructure and our deployments become more complicated or became more complicated, we need better management tools right and and we needed better tools and then as our user base expanded because you you know, when you think about the experience of the average software engineer, you know, in the early 2000s versus the experience of the average software engineer now, back then, you kind of had to know almost everything, right? Like a yeah. little bit of everything. Um, Well, more than a little bit. But, yeah. And now, you know, our – we've kind of – Separated our domains, right? We have very, very, I don't want to say siloed, but for lack of a better word, we have very, very siloed domains right now. Infrastructure is very complicated, and our users don't, and our customers no longer have to understand everything about the machine, the infrastructure, everything. So in 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 our in our drive to make the systems usable we've had to develop these necessary abstractions so that you know software engineers other customers can effectively make use of these systems without having to absorb years upon years of systems and infrastructure knowledge
0: yeah it's interesting that you mentioned that about people having to know a a little bit about everything because I, when I think back to the people, the engineers that I was working with, you know, back around 2000, you know, I feel like they were pretty operational savvy, you know, that they, they weren't just heads down writing code, you know, they, they understood what it meant for the code to be running in production and how to debug
1: problems in production and and things like that. I mean, I think, you know, you, you kind of see that almost in, in any Field right as the field matures, as access to the field becomes more democratized, you know you you want to make the more complicated tools that kind I don't want to say stand in the way, but you want to make sure that you know the programmers can get access to deploy with as little friction as possible because. Yeah. The programmers and the software engineers write the code that pays the bills, right? That's the shopping cart. That's, you know, the the social media platform. That's the photo app, right? That's the subscription service. That's what people pay for, right? They don't necessarily pay to make sure that you have fully redundant multi-region infrastructure. (laughs) They don't care. They just want to shop. And and we, we have to, right? We don't have a choice, right? We, if, if we don't make the systems accessible, then we have no jobs. So, you know, I, I don't, I'm not saying it in, in that way that you had to know a little bit about everything to be negative. It was just a different time, a different, yeah, different way things for were. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So
0: I personally have a lot of empathy for somebody who's an application engineer mm-hmm who who doesn't want to take the time to learn about kubernetes or service mesh or whatever the new hotness is you know that you know they've been hired to to develop a product you know they they think that that's where their value to the business is you know in in writing this code to to make this thing work and and i wonder what your thoughts on that are
1: i feel the same as you in that aspect right there are systems programmers there are back end service developers there are front end engineers programmers there are people that like to do all of the above right they get you know they're like all right you know I've done enough back end for a little bit I want to do some front end work I can be more creative there right so and and I I definitely feel the same way and I think it also Part of that comes from, you know, it all depends on the scale of your operation, what your business wants you to do, and and how you want to operate, right? There are some engineers that care about it, and I I don't mean care as in care to make sure it's cool. They just, they're interested might be a better word. Of course. They're interested in the other aspects of what it takes, and there are other engineers who are they're very focused on their domain. Like they know their domain, just like how yeah. we know our domain. And you know, I I can completely understand the I understand both sides, right? On one sure. hand, you wanna write your code and get it out the door with as little friction as possible. And from a business standpoint too, the business might be thinking, I don't want any friction. But then yeah. there are also, they're also concerns now as you scale and you get bigger as an organization, you have to think about how do my systems and how is my organization structured? Are there any artificial gates? Um, you know, any kind of roadblocks, gates, where do... What are the the delays in the cycle time, right? Right. And and you want to try to eliminate delays in the cycle. And the, by cycle, I mean writing code, getting it to production, getting that feedback and, and repeating it. You want to find all the speed bumps in that cycle and, and get it out the door. So, you know, I can also appreciate both sides. I think we're still learning how we balance those two things.
0: I've seen application engineers move into SRE even because they were so interested in it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've seen that too. I started out as a software engineer myself before I started to focus more on the systems and operation side of of the world. Um, You know, and I'm, seen operations engineers move into other aspects of software engineering too yeah you know so i think we just have to figure out a way where we can balance everything you know because all of these domains especially now right with the tools we have they are very time consuming to learn They take time, they take knowledge, they take additional knowledge and understanding. And, you know, we have to be respectful to some extent of everybody's time. Um, And we have to be understanding that these things, this is not just knowledge you suck up overnight, right? So I think this is where the drive for some of these abstractions come from. And, you know, some of the friction that we're seeing, right? Like, no ops, zero ops. Like, <laughs> I, I, I understand, right? Nobody wants to be in a queue for some infrastructure to be configured before your product or your code reaches your customers. Sure. But at the same time, you know, you have to... Two choices there, and it's it's a compromise between engineering and the business side of the house too. Because are you going to put operations capability on every team? Are you going to say every engineer has to be full stack all the way down? Um, That also has trade offs, yeah, as well. So, you know, I we just have to compromise and and negotiate and you know i don't i don't believe it's it's necessarily the right thing for every organization to say everybody has to be literally full stack yeah. but also it's not appropriate either for engineers to say that i don't want to learn anything about this i just want to do this one thing right uh, for a variety of reasons like the, the least of which is that you know you you have to stay valuable in the industry you have to understand yeah. right like what we consider the cloud today might be delivered in a raspberry sized raspberry pi sized machine <laughs> in in 5 years yeah. right with as much compute power and you have to You know, you you have to think about and try to understand what that means and and what does that mean for you, right? Because, you know, Kubernetes is kind of like, you know, maybe it's our first-gen data center cloud operating system, for lack of a better term, you know. I think that's a good term. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, uh, You know, we, we might get to the stage where it's just common, ubiquitous, where you default, you install, you know, your hardware, whatever that may be, and that's how you configure it. It's just the operating system now, right? Yeah. So.
0: One of the things I really liked about Kubernetes when I first encountered it was the fact that it took a lot of the operational patterns that people were already using and just encoded them into the platform you know yes. and and i think about health checks for instance yeah. you know the shops that i was in before kubernetes came out we we had health checks you know and we we had automated ways of taking something out of service you know um and we had to roll all of that stuff ourselves you know we had to figure it out we had to you know negotiate with the engineers and and you know when a new application came out we had to sometimes reinvent the wheel and and with all that stuff baked into the platform you don't have those those arguments or that energy that has to go into figuring out how to implement it
1: yeah you know i think you said something interesting you'd have those conversations and negotiations right i think it's those conversations are still important it's good that kubernetes provides a consistent language to use and a consistent set of tools that you can use to hash out the technical details of those conversations, right? Those conversations absolutely still should happen. It, it, it but also we have to realize that Kubernetes is not a batteries included solution, right? <laughs> you have a long way to go from Kubernetes to Heroku, for example, right? Uh, or even Cloud Foundry, right? I think. When a lot of dev teams say, oh, we want Kubernetes, we want this, or something like that, what they really want is a full-featured platform as a service, like uh, Heroku, or like a self-hosted Cloud Foundry, or something like that. That's really what you want. And I think there is a huge disconnect in the effort it takes to get from spinning up Kubernetes, whether it's self-managed Kubernetes or Kubernetes as a service, to a fully baked and managed platform like Heroku, right? And I think all developers would... I loved Heroku when I used it. I supported a team using Heroku. It was great. Um, It didn't take away ops from me. I still had to focus my ops energy and my ops time on other aspects of that. you know. But I think that's really what a lot of teams want. And, and Kubernetes, at least it's not batteries included like that as yet. You, you yeah. have to bolt on a lot of tools. And then now, once you start bolting on all these additional tools, then your configuration space starts to expand <laughs> almost exponentially, right? Um, because now you're not just writing a simple deployment manifest that you're pushing it out, right? The different phrases you have to put in those manifests and the different types of manifests you have to now create to configure your load balancer, configure, you know, your your communication, your, your network policies, yeah. you know, configure your redundancy, your auto scaling, You know, those things just start exponentially multiplying. And I think that's where we now see a lot of these other abstractions start coming in where it just becomes too much and teams become frustrated. And they now start asking, okay, you just got to wrap this up for me now, right? (laughs) And, And that's where a lot of the problems start because today's awesome abstraction is tomorrow's or somebody else's broken code. I think I said yeah. that in the talk. And but and, and the truth is all code today is somebody's broken code tomorrow, right? Yeah. So when you write these abstractions and, and when you put these things out there, you have to make sure that they have a life cycle that matches your organization, your business, your product as well, right? Because... You know, all abstractions are going to encode the limits of your platform, right? You're going to encode the limits. You're going to encode opinions in the abstraction, right? And that might be appropriate today. And then you and I move on to our next job. Right. The next people that come in behind us, you know, those limits are encoded. They try to do something and all of a sudden... You hit one of those limits, and there you have your reliability limit as well now, right? You now have an outage. Yeah. So abstractions themselves aren't necessarily bad, right? What what happens is when you write the abstraction or you create the abstraction, and you just forget about it, and you're like, job done. (laughs) You just now have to click this little button, and it will automatically generate a thing and your apps out the door that works for the app today, will it work for the app tomorrow?
0: Yeah. I, I think you've said a lot of really interesting things there and it makes me think about, um, things like, uh, Comments and code and documentation you know that that it's important to to somehow document those kinds of decisions you're talking about, right like like when you've made those compromises or when you've had to you know do something a certain way because of the limits of the system you know it's it's important that people coming down the road have a have a way of seeing what your thinking was
1: yeah, definitely, and that's one of the things i I called out is that you have to document your fraction right your abstraction doesn't get rid of documenting everything, right? It changes the type of documentation you have to write, right? You you no longer have to necessarily document how a Kubernetes service works or what you need to do to configure it, but you still have to document how your abstraction creates the service and what types it can or cannot create and what it will, how it configures the service, right? Yeah. So, so that the user knows what they're, what they're getting.
0: Yeah. It seems to me that a lot of the complexity that we're dealing with kind of came specifically from when people started adopting microservices as a pattern. Because because as, a, as an ops person in that period of time, you know, yeah. I suddenly saw the complexity of what I was doing, yeah. you know, go way up. That suddenly yeah. instead of managing maybe three services, I was yeah. now managing 15 or 20 and dealing with firewall rules and load balancer setups for all of those things.
1: Yeah, I mean, definitely I can uh, relate to that. I saw the very same thing. I see... A lot of this complexity coming in when teams decide to split monoliths up into smaller applications, and you know, i i I don't, I don't want to say that the is still out on microservices. <laughs> I don't, I don't think it's still out. I think we have, I don't know if we have a hung jury, but we, we you know, <laughs> I mean, like, I think. The thing we have to consider is just like how we recognize that only very mature organizations can operate microservices at scale in the correct fashion, we also have to recognize that the same thing applies for infrastructure. Now, you might be thinking, well, that doesn't really make sense because I'm deploying a monolith on Kubernetes, but you're infrastructure is now the microservice, right? <laughs> Kubernetes is distributed, right? Yeah. So sure, you might be deploying a monolith on top of Kubernetes, but Kubernetes itself is a series of microservices.
0: There was a really interesting talk at SREcon actually about, um, about owning a Kubernetes cluster and providing that service to engineers and uh, setting SLOs for Kubernetes itself, which, which I thought was super interesting and not something that I would thought about. Usually when I thought about SLOs, I, I was thinking more in terms of those, those applications that are coming from our product
1: team. Yeah, no, yeah, that's something I have to deal with, right? Is like providing SLOs, like, you know, yeah, it's, it's interesting because It's now a thing that operates on top of your base level infrastructure. So your infrastructure provider has an SLO that it gives you. But now you put this other whole distributed software package on top of it with individual components that can shut down. So what are you going to tell your users? And then not only that, like end users have to know you know, that writing a piece of software that's going to operate correctly on top of or inside a Kubernetes cluster or on a Kubernetes cluster (laughs) takes just additional work and there are additional things you now have to be concerned about. I mean, you know, granted, you know, your cloud provider can yank an instance anytime it wants because of a hardware failure. But generally speaking you can be expected that you know that instance is going to be long lived unless you shut it down whether or not it should be long lived is a whole different question <laughs> but if we're keeping things simple you could generally expect that that instance will be long lived you know when you run your application in a container on a kubernetes cluster now you know anything can happen literally anytime right yeah. The Kubernetes we have to realize that Kubernetes has a job and we have to appropriately communicate that to our end users that Kubernetes has a job. This is what it these are the things and the actions it can take to accomplish its job and this is what that means for you. Yeah. Right? Because it's going to make software behave strange if it's not if you don't appropriately handle all the additional error cases that that could come up
0: yeah that makes a lot of sense how do you educate engineers on that kind
1: of thing <laughs> i mean you know listen i feel like as ideally as engineers we all have the learning bug right we yeah. are we're in this business because we like to learn. Um, you know, sure the pay is good too, but we also like to learn. Um, we like to take things apart. You know, like those are just some of the personality traits why we're here, right? And yeah, you know, I think you know, as an engineer, if if you accept a job. And the organization is a cloud-based, container-based, Kubernetes-based organization. As part of accepting that job or working in that environment, you should learn what that means. You should seek that knowledge out. But my team is also here to assist you, right? You're free to say, hey, I don't understand what this means. And uh, you should... uh, you should you should push them to educate you, right? There's a awesome website. I, I think it's what Kubernetes.wtf, you know? Oh yeah. Yeah. Check out some of those failure scenarios and, and try to understand what that means for you.
0: Yeah, that's a, a fascinating um fascinating site. Yeah. I've seen some really good talks to the um the folks, I think it's the team at Airbnb, have given a couple talks at SREcon where they've talked about uh-huh. some of the failure scenarios uh-huh. they've run into. And and, and I find that uh, really interesting because um, it's definitely different different types of failures than we experienced back in that days where we had pretty yeah. static infrastructures. Yeah. And, and applications were generally pinned to a specific host, and that yeah. was where they ran for yeah. their entire lifetime.
1: Yeah. I mean, I... I I am no love lost for waking up because a server died, right? Like <laughs> don't don't get me wrong, I'm not saying I want to go back to those days where we had things statically pinned and the server died and you get paged and you have to go figure it out and move processes around. Like yeah. You know, we had to solve that problem if we were ever going to scale up, right? Load. We were the schedulers, right. right? We were the schedulers, right? Exactly. <laughs> that that's just not scalable, right? Load balancers were great once they started to become commonplace. Now you could have pools of machine, and you started to write, you know, jobs across the pool. But even then, you still had to think about stateful versus stateless. So it wasn't yeah. a panacea either, right? Um, you know, so no love lost there. But you know, like all technological changes, engineering changes, you just you just have to adapt and and, and update the way your, your software works. So yeah. yeah. And the failures too now. Wow. You know, I think what <laughs> a lot of people what we don't do a good job of explaining to folks, right? Especially organizations thinking about adopting Kubernetes, you know, take them to their data center right? Go look at this data center. What do you see? You see servers, you see firewalls, you see routers, you see switches, you see cables, right? And then you, get, you do realize now that on a Kubernetes cluster, like when you deploy Kubernetes on this fleet of servers and systems and this data center you see in front of you, yeah. you can now configure... All these wires, every piece of hardware you see here, from the storage array to the load balancer, you can now configure that using Kubernetes, right? As a as a yeah. as a as a good like analogy for them. And then sure. you say, so now think about it, right? You have a full data center staff, you have security, network server config people doing all those jobs so now you're putting all this stuff in software and you're telling your software engineers you must now do it yeah or you're telling that your two-person ops team you must now do it right yeah you would never use two people to run a data center of ten thousand servers or a thousand servers or even 300 servers Right? Like you would never do that. So, you know, we have to communicate appropriately and and educate and and let folks know that you would now have a full software defined data center. And every time you add something like another piece of core software or core service to your Kubernetes cluster, it's like adding a rack or two of new infra in your data center, right? Yeah. Like, you know, it's it, sure, you might think it's awesome. Yeah, I just configured this thing, I configured dex to do authentication through SAML and Active Directory, and I just da-da-da-da-da, and you're like, whoa. You, that, that's a whole security and IAM team right there, right? Yeah. Sure, it was a couple lines of code to get it running, but is it running correctly? <laughs> like, are, yeah. whoever set it up, did they think about the proper separation of concerns, you know, least privilege permissions? Yeah. You know, all these things. Like, so, you know, I think it's, we've oversold it a little bit and we've also <laughs> undersold it too. <laughs> How have we undersold it? I mean, it's maybe not undersell it but i mean it's uh, you know the the capabilities are much more than what a lot of people fully understand right yeah but we've also oversold it in that it's not just batteries included it's not just like profit you don't install and profit (laughs) immediately you have to it's 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 interesting because you know, I I've seen orgs that move to the cloud, and the way they move to the cloud is by l- literally rebuilding their data center infra in the cloud. Oh yeah, and that like is, for like in yeah, the Yeah, like cloud. for like yeah. right. And that is like the quickest way to go bankrupt, right? <laughs> yeah. Um no, what a disaster. Yeah. And you know, when you think about that now and you think about Kubernetes, you're like, oh. Well, if I wanted to rebuild a data center in the cloud with all those data center capabilities, completely software defined, it's like, that's what you have, right? You, you have yeah. a Kubernetes cluster, but those organizations that have been rebuilding their data center in the cloud are under no circumstances should they go anywhere near a Kubernetes cluster. <laughs> <laughs> because it's that's not, really the, yeah. It's not the right tool. It's the wrong, right mindset, but wrong implementation, kind of. Yeah, for sure.
0: So you mentioned configuration management in your talk as being a really big moment, kind of in the progress that we've made over this period of time we're talking about and um i'm always interested in that topic because i spent several years you know uh, implementing puppet and then eventually i worked actually at puppet as an sre using oh, wow. it internally yeah and and so i you know i i find it funny that people nowadays uh, Think of configuration management as a thing we did in the past, you know, and yet we're running these clusters that have heaps and heaps of YAML that that make them work right.
1: Yeah. Configuration management isn't dead. Like, you're just writing it in another format now. (laughs) You might not be writing uh, Chef or Puppet or Ruby or weird looking yaml you're writing other weird looking yaml which why yaml please oh dear um i think
0: i haven't seen it yet but joe beta gave a talk recently i think where he apologized for for the yaml choice Mm -hmm. and explained it i have to watch that i'll Mm -hmm. i'll link to that in the show notes too
1: I think we could equate the decision to use YAML like the decision to include null in C and C++. (laughs) But no, right? Um, No, configuration management isn't gone. Like, in some circumstances, Kubernetes becomes your configuration management system, right? Because right. you can configure your whole data center using YAML, so there you go. It is right. Right. There's a lots of different ways to look at Kubernetes. Right. It could be looked at. Oh, it's a container orchestration platform, or it could be. Oh no no, it's just config management for virtual software defined infrastructure, and and it's both and. You know, so you really have to to think about that and grasp that a little bit. But but yeah, and also, how are you creating your Kubernetes nodes, right? Yeah, how are you bootstrapping them? It'd be great if you can bootstrap all of them with Cappy and kubeadm or Cops or something, right? That that's great. But what about the the containers that you're using? How are you building your base container images? How are you configuring your base AMIs that you're using to spin up your your cluster? This is, you know, assuming you're not using a fully managed solution, right? Right, right. But no, you still have configuration management. And even, I would say that now more than ever, it's super, super important. um, You know, you, you're using a docker container and sure that can encapsulate all your dependencies but like have you tried searching for a missing indentation in a giant yaml file right <laughs> config management is way more important now because we're not you're not just building dependencies and 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 maybe installing packages and making sure config files are in the right place right you're as as we've been saying you're configuring your whole data center sometimes multiple yeah. times over right so it's it's super important and you know i i haven't looked much at helm 3 as yet i know it's a lot better yeah. and they've made some improvements
0: yeah getting but, rid of tiller was yes, pretty big <laughs> getting rid
1: of tiller was pretty big right but at the same time right i i don't know if we're at like the final state for like managing these these resources right yeah because a lot of teams still write wrappers and abstractions on top of those things
0: of course yeah right i'm sure there's a lot of dsls out there for generating yaml
1: yeah (laughs) yeah yeah i mean that we're we're gonna have to deal with that right like yeah it's just one of those things we're gonna have to deal with you know before you know before terraform added a lot of features there were dsls to generate terraform that gives you the capability to do looping and and things like that and, and other advanced control flow structures um there are similar DSLs out there to generate cloud formation right to give you more advanced templating and, and control flow and control f- structures to generate cloud formation and and now we're applying that to to the <laughs> kubernetes <laughs> ecosystem and I think you know
0: yeah
1: it's one okay. Listen, I've said it, I said it before, I'll say it again. Like, configuration management is like table stakes, right? Like, yeah. you've got to have config management, right? Yeah. Whether it's Puppet or Chef or Ansible or Salt or something, you've got to have some config management. Now, like, how does that map onto Kubernetes with YAML and, and all the various manifests you have to write? You know, that just takes it to a whole lot of different levels. You yeah know, it, it, and and you know, I don't know if we're solving the right problem either. You know, we write well another reason we write abstractions is to hide and and fix or smooth over problems in the thing we're abstracting over. Obviously, people want to use Kubernetes. They don't want to suffer through the horrors of generating ten different manifests to configure their apps, so they start using Helm. But is should we be fixing it with an abstraction or should we going back and, and figure something out at a lower level, right? Like hmm. obviously all those individual services and components that Kubernetes provides has its own config, but I don't know, maybe we need another lower level construct inside Kubernetes like like maybe what we have now is just like the assembly language equivalent. We still need like a higher level thing, right? And, and I know that's what Helm is kind of trying to do, but yeah. it's still just templating and filling in values, right? So like, yeah. you know, I, I don't know. Like, do we need like a higher level construct that just, where you define like a set of batteries included things in the at the base level and that's what you get right turn it into more of a pass like something like that right like and, yeah. and i think i don't know if that would help right it it seemed to be useful with with heroku right you just uh yeah drop your bill packet
0: people bring up that example of heroku a lot and i think it's because it was so useful to people, you know, that that it really did solve the problems that engineers had. You know, it gave them a really low friction way to get their their applications into production. And and I agree with you. I think people still do want that, you know. I think that if you're if you're, you know, building kubernetes for your your application engineers that that's that's sort of the north star, right? That's like the experience to, to, to reach for, you know, you're not going to get there right away, you know, it's, it's going to take a lot of work, but, but that's, that's really, to me, you know, when I think about the, the kinds of things you were talking about cycle times earlier, you know, when, when I think about the kinds of things that reduce those cycle times, it's, it's people being blocked, right? Because they don't have access to a thing and they have to open up a ticket for another team to do some work for them. And, and really, if we want to keep those cycle times low, the, the way to do that is to is to make things self-service.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You have to make it self-service. And then when you start making it self-service, you start writing wrappers and abstractions and, and, <laughs> and, and you just then you just start going down the rabbit hole too, right? Um, I think one of the, awesome things about heroku too is just the whole plugin infrastructure where you could pick a random logging service or you know like heroku database management was really really cool um yeah you know and that kind of stateful management story like databases on kubernetes I, I, it's still challenging right now there are brave people who are doing it um <laughs> You know, and you can do it with a lot of planning and a lot of understanding of what the limitations of that. Um, So, yeah, and I I think we also have to do a good job of just communicating those limits. I still find myself... See, one of the things when you you wrap these things up, right? Like, people forget that, oh, there's a real disk drive somewhere, right? (laughs) Right. And if my if the physical server that my disk is attached to through the layers of kubernetes is over here but then it dies and the app rolls over to another server over there yeah they just assume that the disk is going to come along with them but no a hard drive is a <laughs> physical thing right so how are you now gonna get your data over here? So I just even like simple things like that we, we have to we have to talk about more. And and just the type of apps that are appropriate for yeah. for Kubernetes.
0: Yeah. So you, you mentioned in your talk, you know, a lot about these different layers of abstraction that, that we've developed. Um do you think that we've we've kind of hit the point where we're running out of layers? No. Or no? No.
1: <laughs> Once again, I, I refer to what I said earlier. We are engineers. Our industry demands it. <laughs> Our eagles demand it. I demand it. <laughs> are you going to get off this call and go and implement some more layers Of course, of abstraction? right? No, we're not done. Like, there's just... First of all, like, you know... We're, we're not done. Like, we know we're not done because technology is never done. Like, Kubernetes solved the problem we have today, which is everybody wanted to run Docker in prod across multiple machines. How do we orchestrate that, right? Yeah. Like, Docker it encompasses or encapsulates another set of trade-offs that we're making, right? In Docker, we were like, all right, you know what? We can't solve dependency management. Let's give up. Let's just use a docker file. <laughs> so we have tra- we've traded dependency management for disk space. Sure, disk space is cheap. Right? We've traded dependency management for network capacity. Sure, yeah. like, you know, 10 gig, 40 gig, 100 gig is is a thing now. But Eventually somebody's gonna be doing something so massive where they're like, Yeah no, this this ain't gonna work. We gotta do something else. And they're gonna go back and they're gonna solve that problem for them. Yeah. And then we're like, wait, what? We don't have to use Docker images anymore. Heck, it could be it could be unikernels, you know? And maybe now, what we then look at is, you know, we now start back over and you now have Kubernetes bare metal without Docker, but as a hypervisor, right? If that made sense to anybody, (laughs) right? Bare metal Kubernetes, everything built back now into the hypervisor, right? Like, because if you think about it, right there, you know, Kubernetes security is challenging. The isolation, between the isolation between like containers it's not perfect right remember a container is not a virtual machine yeah i expect you to know that if you if i ever interview you it's a set of curl <laughs> right. capabilities right and if you log into a machine running a bunch of containers and you do ps you will see all of them okay so you got to remember Container is not a VM. You don't get the same isolation. You don't get the same security boundaries as you do with a VM. So it's entirely conceivable that our next iteration is some kind of unikernal nano VMs. And then you see we have to figure out a way to put all these capabilities in those systems now, hypervisors, and then we just we start back over we're re-implementing the same or similar concepts, but at a different level. Right? Yeah. Like, you know, I, I use VMware ESX. Um, I used to run some large ESX clusters. And ESX has a there's a fair overlap. You know, it'll it'll if you have the advanced feature set, it'll move virtual machines yeah. between nodes shared storage, it, it has a somewhat API, you can configure it remotely, mm-hmm. so a lot of these things exist so, you know, are we done abstracting? No. Are we done reinventing the wheel? Absolutely not.
0: Uh- <laughs> it's funny that you mentioned unikernels because I remember a few years ago when I thought unikernels were maybe going to be in the next hotline yes. and, and yeah. they just didn't they really didn't. end
1: up they didn't end up there yet. Um And I think it's just a matter of time. You know, we just need... Listen, we, we all follow what somebody else does. Somebody cool enough hasn't done unikernels yet, so therefore there is no big need <laughs> to follow them.
0: I mean, I think from my oh, perspective, for, I think from my perspective, a lot of it... um Really what the Docker folks nailed is the user experience, right? Yes. Like I remember when Docker yes. first came out yes. and and I installed it on my laptop yes. and and I was super impressed yes. with how easy they made it yes. to 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 use these tools yes. that were already built into the kernel, yes. right? Like these things were already there, but they, they took it and 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 made it easy to use. Yep. And you know, in the in the shop that I'd been using, you know, we were we were running Solaris. We were already using the Solaris version of containers. You know, uh, so the the concept was was already there. Yeah. You know, but they did such a great job of of packaging a set of tools that that made it easy to use. And I think that that really a lot of the success of Kubernetes comes from the fact that initially, at least, it was just building on Docker. We're right?
1: On Docker. Yeah. Yeah. And let that be a lesson to you, right? If you want people to use your stuff, make it easy to use and build a community around it, right? Yeah. And which is what Docker did, Kubernetes did. Uh, sure Kubernetes is way more complicated, but like if you wanna build and manage a hundred or ten machines or even six Raspberry Pis on your desk, you can do it. It's the community yeah. has provided ways and easy instructions to do um these things so yeah you know but you know like reinventing the wheel and and ending the (laughs) abstraction that's not even unique to us right as long as we're writing software we're always gonna be trying to find ways like listen our our even our core cpus are changing now, the way our machines are designed are changing, right? They're just changing slowly from the CPU out, right? You know, you have, I have 20 cores underneath my desk at home, right? Programming something like that is way different. Um, you've, I don't yeah. know if you've seen me talk about Erlang, but you know, that's why I, I like Erlang, right? It's like- yeah, sure. So I like the actor model, you know, know, managing before Kubernetes, easily distributing workloads across 10, 20 machines wasn't necessarily the easiest thing to do. Sure, we had things like Mesos and there were manual things you could do. But to be honest, none of them made it as easy as Kubernetes. But... The thing we have to realize with everything is, you know, especially with with software and systems is like what you see is just the tip of the iceberg, right? There is a lot below the waterline. And I think, you know, Kubernetes definitely shows that. And, you know, I don't have a lot of experience with Mesos or other systems, but they show that too, right? Like sure there's what you interact with. Yeah. But there's a there's a lot below that waterline, right?
0: Yeah, Mesos is an interesting one because there definitely was a point in time where you could do a Mesos and Kubernetes bake off yes. and choose Mesos. Yes.
1: Right? I did that. Yeah. I did that. I did that bake-off and I was like, I'm gonna go with Mesos because it's oh, it's more mature, it's this, it's that. But then the tides quickly shifted. Yeah. Um you know I think the other thing that you know, we're, we're, I think another thing that we have to think about, too, is when you ask, are we going to keep abstracting, is, is where, where are we going, right? So what do we have? When your job is running or your workload is running on a single machine or whatever, you can use all the resources on that machine. If your job grows out of that machine, you have two choices. Get a bigger machine or split your job up into smaller components that can then grow again. But we haven't gotten to the point yet where we said, wait, why don't I just start executing code on that machine next to me? Why do I have to split my job up? Right? I've got 20 cores on this machine and my app is multi threaded somehow. For some definition of what a thread is, the machine next to me is running the same operating system. It's got the same whether or not it has the same number of cores. Who cares? It takes the same type of binary that it can execute. The ABI is the same. Yeah. Why am I not just like saying, "Hey, you thread, go run over here"? Yeah, right. <laughs> I, that, that's that's really I, interesting. Yeah, that's I think that's gonna happen. We're You know, maybe not on 1 gig Ethernet, but, you know, 10 gig Ethernet, 40 gig Ethernet, 100 gig Ethernet, definitely now, right? Maybe not Ethernet, but some other low latency version of Ethernet where it's okay, right? Or maybe the way we even start programming is, is completely different. You know, we just... Say all right, you go run there, you go run there, and we just communicate with messages or something like that, right? Yeah. So you know, I think we haven't hit like the full end state of what it means to do distributed computing yet. Sure. So we we, we have a we have ways to go, and that is a space I'm super super interested in, and. You know, every now and then I'll go check and do some research and some playing, see what the state of the art is there. But, you know, I, I don't want Kubernetes to move my jobs around, right? That's not what I want. That That's just, that causes issues. Sure, we can code around it, but it causes issues. Yeah. I just want my job to just expand across the entire cluster. <laughs> like just one one executable that's running and it just spreads out, does whatever it wants, whether or not that's good or bad, you know, sure. But, you know, I, I think that's, that's what we have to look forward to. And, and that's what, you know, that, that's what we want to see.
0: Yeah. I think that um, AI can solve all of that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I love the way you said that. Just so deadpan, too. Oh, man. If you all could see his face, I was like. <laughs> oh, my gosh.
0: <laughs> um. I want to ask you about uh, one more thing. So, um at one point in your talk, you pointed to the CNCF landscape image which oh. <laughs> I will I will link to that in the show notes. I'm, I'm assuming most <laughs> folks listening have seen that before, but but um you know the the way I relate to that is there was there was a period a couple years ago where um, I actually ended up moving out of SRE into other kinds of roles. You know, I did a little bit of time in product management, and I've been working in DevRel, you know, the last couple of years. And and part of the reason why I did that is because of that sort of thing. not Not the landscape specifically, but the fact that there's a new infra tool every five minutes yeah. now, right? And I, I constantly felt behind and I constantly felt like, you know, I had tons of imposter syndrome about this. I would see yeah. other people using some new cool tool that I didn't know anything about. And, and um, it put a lot of stress on me. And I'm wondering what kind of advice you would have for someone in that situation who's seeing the way these things are all growing simultaneously very quickly, you know, and, yeah. and feels intimidated by
1: that. I, I have to be honest with you I feel the same right yeah I I don't try to keep up because it is impossible to keep up yeah the landscape grows way too fast you just you cannot keep up right unless keeping up is your full-time job so I I really don't try to keep up yeah. if I see something interesting I'll look around do some Google searches but That's about it. If there's a problem I need to solve, that's when I go and see what is the current, I don't know, acceptable way where folks are solving similar problems. Right? Because, as I said, it would be a full-time job. And I think that leads back to one of the first things you asked me about on this talk, is about empathy, right? Yeah. If I recognize that it's so challenging to keep up, why would I expect me to then push all these operational things onto a software engineer who already has to keep up with a new front-end framework every six weeks, (laughs) right? They have it just as bad, bad, right? So, or, and you know, I know we'll pick on front-end frameworks because they're an easy target, but they can, they should pick on ops too, that landscape map grows daily, right? Mm. So, you know, so we, we, we have to just consider all these things, but yeah, no, you, you can't keep up and you shouldn't feel bad, right? I focus on fundamentals, right? I tell the, I give the same answer to everybody, you know, that asks like, how do I learn? how do I keep up? What do I do? I'm like, listen, what do you want to do? I want to write programs learn to write programs, right? Learn to write programs. If you're a programmer, yeah. learn to write programs. Once you know how to write programs, you're going to need to deploy them somewhere. Do the bare minimum you have to do to get your programs deployed, right? That's what yeah. you got to do. You're, you're learning to code. You want to get it online. Go get a free Heroku account. You want to learn AWS, go spin up or GCP, go spin something up. Do whatever you got to do so that you can hit that program you wrote from your desktop. I'm not telling you it's going to be production ready. I'm not telling you it's going to be safe and secure. But I am telling you that you'll be able to see the fruits of your learning on the internet. Now, once you do that out there, your little toy app's going to get hacked. If you are, <laughs> no, right? <laughs> I'm like, if you no. are. <laughs> I'm laughing because it's so true. Yes. You said. I'm like, if that is something you are now interested in, right? You can then try to understand why your app was hacked, which you should understand why your app was hacked, and you should fix your programming technique. If your yeah. instance was hacked, sure, understand why your instance was hacked, If it's a firewall thing, that's relatively simple to solve. But then now, you have a choice to make. You now have to decide which rabbit hole you're going to go down and (laughs) what your specialty is going to be. Because remember, right? Your programming career is going to be, hopefully, a very long one. You will have plenty of time to decide to specialize in things that you become interested in. But if you don't know how to program, your career doesn't start. If yeah. you don't know what an IP address is, your career doesn't start. If you don't know what an instance is or a machine is or how to at least install Linux on something, doesn't matter if it's secure or not. If you don't know how to do any of that basic fundamental stuff, your career does not start. Yeah, And it's the same thing for us. and. Working software engineers, right? The business pays you to do a thing, right? Like, do what you need to do. You you know, like, we also have to realize that you don't have to adopt the newest technologies, right? If you're in a small shop and your job is to convert an Excel spreadsheet into a web app, do that, right? Put it online, roll an AMI, Use whatever config management you feel comfortable with. Salt, Puppet, Ansible, Chef. Get it out there and rely on simple stuff that Amazon or your cloud provider of choice presents to you to keep your system safe and secure, right? Because they all have, like, you know, I think, you know, you put up a default Amazon instance on a VPC it's gonna be pretty safe most of your intrusion as long as you don't have something like SSH exposed with a crappy password Damn. your intrusion now is through your app, right? I'm like don't check your credentials in to get y- out. yes there's like <laughs> yes, just focus on the fundamentals now, if your line of business app that you converted from a spreadsheet into a web app suddenly takes off and now you have. Ten thousand users. Now you have the resource, the opportunity, and to figure out how you're going to scale it and make it secure, assuming you're making money. But to try to say that you need the most complicated tool from the start, like Kubernetes or even containers, right? Like it's not, it's not fair. It's not appropriate. And in a small shop, like, if you don't have your code online for people to use, then you won't even reap the benefits of using something like Kubernetes, right? Because you'll be out of business before you even get it running.
0: (laughs) No, it's a great point.
1: Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, fundamentals is, is what I always come back to. And it's funny because, like, As many programming languages as I've dabbled in and played in or written code in, like I always come back to see. For some, it's just that's it. Right? Like whether or not it's the best fundamental thing to know, I don't know about that. It but you know, it works for the things I wanna do sometimes. Right? Sure. And, and, and that's what I use. And I also want to point out that infrastructure and operations, we are not the only people that are faced with these kind of abstraction problems. Where is our industry and our tooling going to go? Right? All software is faced with. I know we joked about front end devs earlier, but man, if I was in the Node ecosystem and the JavaScript ecosystem right now, yeah, no. Yeah. Right? So we're not I mean, even the only even ones. you look at something like databases,
0: you yes. know, like when when I was doing that sort of work, you know, there were a handful of database options and you just picked one of them. And, yeah. and now even that area has has become so yeah. much
1: more complex. So we're, we're not the only ones. And I think, you know, we should reach out to our fellow technologists and talk to them. You know, and, and, and I think before you do any wrapping or abstracting, Uh, Reach out to your customers, understand what they're looking for, what their pain points are, and definitely educate them on what this wrapper... I can write you this wrapper. I can make it easy for you. But you must understand these things, right? We have now created a pet. (laughs) Right? This thing that we've written here to generate cattle... Sure, it's going to generate cattle, but that cattle maker is now our pet. Yeah. Right. And we have to own that together because if I change it, you're going to be upset. If you grow out of it and you come to me out of school, I'm going to be like, whoa, I didn't know you wanted to do that. So we now own this thing together.
0: Yeah. I think a, a, a area that I'm super interested in is uh, incidents that are caused by internal tools that people have written to manage their
1: infrastructure. Yes. I mean, I've read multiple incident reports from both Amazon and Google where the outage was caused by their internal tool just not behaving the right way or... They've grown so, they didn't realize they've grown so big that the tool couldn't handle the new scale that they were operating at, right? And for all intents and purposes, if you have an outage because of Kubernetes, sure, it's not a tool you wrote, but it is an internal tool, so. Yeah,
0: you you own it for sure. You own it. You own it. Uh, so I asked for listener questions, which is something I do, but I did it at the last minute. So I had had one person respond, uh, Jacob. He's at JH Scott. Thank you, Jacob.
1: Yeah, we've been talking. Um, I saw the question. We've been we've been chatting online. On oh, awesome!
0: Yeah. I haven't seen the I haven't seen the replies on Twitter, um, but uh, uh, he was asking, "What are the signs um, that it's too early for you to consider using Kubernetes?"
1: Like, if you didn't understand anything we talked about, you shouldn't be using (laughs) Kubernetes. But, like, you know, as I said, Kubernetes is a massive distributed system. If you don't have appropriate observability and monitoring and logging in place, you shouldn't be using Kubernetes. If you don't have, like, the understanding of what it takes to, you know, make something like Kubernetes self-healing and redundant and resilient, you shouldn't be running Kubernetes. If you don't have any experience running a distributed system, you know, I don't, I don't know if Kubernetes is, is right for you, right? Yeah, um, yeah like, Elizabeth, if you're deploying, and Kubernetes is something you should evolve into. It's not something you build from scratch, right? Like, I think it was Gall that said, uh, a Gall? No complex system was ever built from scratch. <laughs> you all complex systems that are functional were evolved into them. Sure. You don't build them from scratch.
0: Yeah, that totally makes sense. Um you had another question about um how you evaluate the the cost of using Kubernetes, like the salary and, and things like that that it takes to to um to have a a team to staff that.
1: Because that's going to vary so much based on the skills and capabilities and maturity of your organization, right? Sure, I could install Kubernetes on an EC2 fleet right now, or I could use managed Kubernetes. Okay, but now once I turn that loose on 20 developers, one developer, a hundred developers, that management scale becomes completely different, right? Yeah. And then now, remember what we said earlier in that Kubernetes is a full software-defined data center. Security, load balancing, networking, scaling, everything. How many people does it take to run a data center to understand (laughs) all those different domains, right? So you have to think about, all the different domains you now need to become an expert in in order to safely and securely manage and operate a Kubernetes cluster. And then think about your, your your industry. Are you in a highly regulated industry where you have to log and audit and monitor every single thing? Are you using it in a critical operation where it can never go offline? So... You know, that could go from zero to a billion dollars. It all depends (laughs) on what you want to do and what your industry is.
0: Sure. Those are good things to think about, though. Yeah. Um, thanks so much for joining me, Andre. Oh, this is yeah. fantastic. I really had a wonderful time talking with you. Um, like I said, I, I enjoyed the talk so much. I'll definitely link to that in the show notes. I uh, Folks that are listening, I really recommend taking some time to watch that if you can. It's about 40 minutes, and uh, Andre covers a lot of things uh, that we didn't touch on here in the podcast. So, uh, um, Andre, you're 7grok on Twitter? Yes, I am. 7 DROK. What,
1: what does that come from? Completely made up. <laughs> it means absolutely nothing. I think I found out after I made it up that grok means to think. It's from, yeah. like, I think Henry H- Heinlein used it in one yeah. of his books. But it's just completely made up. Gotcha. Do you, uh, do you have
0: anything else you want to mention? Any upcoming talks or things like that?
1: I don't have anything upcoming as yet. I'll definitely tweet about it. Thanks for having me on. This was my pleasure. Uh, please watch the talk, reach out on Twitter. There's There are whole other aspects to abstractions that, you know, I couldn't cover in 40 minutes. Like we haven't even talked about the security implications of hiding whole layers of your infrastructure behind something. <laughs> it can be both good and bad, right? So yeah, thank you very much for having me, Rich.
0: You bet. Cube Cuddle was created and hosted by me, Rich Burroughs. If you enjoyed the podcast, please consider telling a friend. It helps a lot. Big thanks to Emily Griffin, who designed the logo. You can find her at daybrighton.com. And thanks to Mon Placere for our music. You can find more of his work at LoyaltyFreakMusic.com. Thanks a lot for listening.